Welcome to the Like, Bite, and Share podcast, brought to you by Schweiden Sons. Learn the secrets of food and hospitality marketing from some of the best professionals in the food business. Here are your co-hosts, Rev Ciancio from Schweiden Sons and Brad Garoon from BurgerWeekly.com. Hey, Rev. Mr. Brad Garoon, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? I actually was craving a hamburger today. And I assume that you filled that craving. I didn't, but you know, where most people might go, well, that doesn't seem strange for you at all. I did spend nine, eight of the last nine days eating hamburgers. So yeah, it was national hamburger week. What was the best burger you had all week? My favorite burger from NYC burger week. Now, granted I ate 17 different hamburgers, not just from to, to, to correct you. Uh, I ate 17 different hamburgers. All honest, I usually don't play favorites, but I'm going to. Uh, we did an event Friday night called Burgers for Barkers, where we had you know Andrew Zurica from Hard Time Sundays uh, bring some elements of his famous burger, uh, and he mashed it up with uh, Matt Hyland from Pizza Loves Emily, took some of the Emmy burger items, and they put together for one burger, and people said it couldn't be done. Uh, it was a really difficult event to produce because Andrew doesn't use the truck anymore, and Matt is obviously busy with Emmy Squared, and we had to serve it in the rain outside of a distillery. But that burger, uh, to quote my boy Billy Kramer from at Billy, Billy's Burgers, uh, easily top 10 ever. It was phenomenal. Andrew retired the truck. It's only in urban space Vanderbilt now. Uh, well, he's not retiring, and he's just not active in it right now. He's focused on, on urban space. The truck's going to come back. He's just not. Uh, he doesn't have it ready yet, but that's besides, that's beside the point. This burger was amazing. It was so good. It it like it hit on every level that you want a burger to hit on. It was hot. It was juicy. It was succulent. It was savory. It was sweet. You know, there was bacon on it, so it had some crunch to it. The soft bun, uh, potato roll. You didn't think was really going to hold it all together. It did. It was still a half pound of meat. Uh, it was oh god. It was just the way you want a burger to be. I don't know, Brad Garoon, where we're going to go from here. To be honest. I'm sure we'll be fine. And I'm going to I'm going to say that to everyone who didn't get it including myself. I'm sure the world will keep spinning. But it does sound like it was very good. It was outstanding. Have you have you had any good burgers lately? I've not. I've had a bad burger lately, which was disappointing. Oh, no. We don't usually talk about that. Let's hear. So man, I hate to disparage a place, and I will start by saying that um most folks don't go to this place for a burger. They go to it because there are all kinds of games. There's pool, there's ping pong, there's foosball, there's giant connect four, giant Jenga, uh, shuffleboard, all kinds of great stuff. I'm talking about break in Astoria. I've not been. Uh, it was my first time and I tagged along with a buddy to go to a birthday party. I didn't, I, I I'll also say I was not having a great time. I didn't know anyone. I was feeling especially antisocial, which usually when I have a, get a few drinks in me is not a problem, but, uh, was a problem on this evening. And then this giant platter of burgers came out, and my eyes lit up. And then the giant platter of burgers was set down, and my eyes darkened. And was the intention to eat hamburgers? It was not. Okay, and so you just happened to see them, and like a dog with a you know, Pavlovian response, you wanted them. They were brought over to the party that I was tagging along to. Ah, okay, keep going. All right, we're, we're with you. Now continue. The bun was dry, and then the quesadillas that came along with it were bad, too. This is obviously not a place where people go for food, but it was just such a bummer to see so many burgers on one plate and then to not really enjoy them. Uh, so my, this is what I want, the reason I brought it up was, I just want to say to restaurants, you don't have to have a burger on the menu. If you can't do it well, there's lots of food that I won't be as judgmental about if you do it crappily. I know a very, very important site in New York City 
that has a burger and it is one of the most terrible burgers I've ever seen, I've ever had. And it is one of the most popular destinations in New York City, mostly for people who are not from here. And I have spent time trying to convince them to up their burger game. And they said, why would we care? Nobody comes back here. And it just made me sad that people didn't want to care for burgers. Because I'm with you. Oh. You know, you don't need to serve a burger because you can't. Just, just fry some chicken fingers. They'll be fine. Yeah, I'm with you, man. Just there are just other foods that are easier to make that great than burgers, or even passable than yeah. burgers. Yeah, dude, there's tons of awesome potato chips out there. Just sell me those. Yeah, right. A bag of chips. That's great. Speaking of things that are great, um, tell me what you know about Food Beast. Oh man, I am a massive fan. I have been for a while. Uh, if you are just crazy obsessed with weird foods, it, you need to. You know what? Just sit back and listen to our interview with with Jeff from Food Beast. You're going to have a lot of fun with this one. Jeff Kutnick is the co-founder of Food Beast. If you are not familiar with Food Beast and you are food obsessed, I want you to pause the podcast right now, go over to foodbeast.com and add their feed to your RSS and follow them on whatever is your favorite social network. Uh, it's a never-ending source of highly entertaining, you know, drool-worthy, and funny food news and information. The site's been around since 2008 and has since become a foundation of food trends, recipes, and entertainment. Jeff, what is your biggest pet peeve with publicists or marketing folks reaching out to you looking for coverage on Food Beast? The biggest pet peeve has got to be spelling the name wrong, uh, but that's probably a pretty common one. Um, you might have heard that before. So I'm going to go with uh, the next biggest pet peeve is just pitching something that's completely uh, irrelevant towards, towards what we cover. Um, so if you're pitching like a sh plastic shower hook for your bathroom and you're pitching foodbeast.com, I hate you. <laughs> Does that, do you get plastic shower hook pitches a lot? I wouldn't say like a lot, but I also wouldn't say not a lot. So it's probably like, you know, there's probably like a half a dozen times a month where we're just like, what? Um, uh, okay. Like you're just, you're just blasting that out and there's nothing I think more insensitive to uh, for a journalist's time uh, when you're wasting it. So, I, I'd like to make a suggestion. I'd love to see a, a section on the website of completely irrelevant pitches to Food Beast. And for somebody that's a fan like I am, uh, I think that'd be fun to just to make see how how ridiculous some of the pitches get. You know, it wouldn't be too surprising. Uh, we've uh, we've tossed around that idea for a Medium article because that's where we usually publish stuff that's just not relevant necessarily to the Food Beast audience, but that things that we find interesting. I wouldn't be surprised if there's a, a publicist Medium post about the things that we get pitched. What kind of stuff have you published to Medium before? Um, we talk a lot about our publisher stuff on there. Um, so the three co-founders, uh, Rudy, Eli, and I, um, we all wear certain hats for Food Beast, whether that's editorial lead or uh, web dev or for partnerships and finance. Um, but we also are curious beyond those specific roles. Um, we're really trying to build ourselves as a, as a food publisher, as a digital publisher in an ever-increasing technological world. Um, so we noticed some things, and we wanted to have... Uh, a medium to be able to publish stuff like that on. Um, so every once in a while it'll be, you know, things from audience acquisition stuff that we noticed or how, you know, majority of our revenue is coming from native content versus uh, display advertising, things that we've just noticed across the years. And, and that's been a good place for us because we've wanted a place to kind of vent or at least talk about certain things. And sometimes just foodbeast.com isn't 
the right uh, format for that. All right, Jeff. So I have a uh, I have another f- sort of intro question here, but on a much lighter note, would you ever eat at a Pizza Hut that's entirely run by cats? Uh, yeah, I I would definitely do that. Um, I think any QSR restaurant run by animals of any sort, I would uh, I would definitely want to partake in that. Um, just because why not? You know. I think I I think I missed a, a new article. That uh, was the background for that question. Brad, have you not seen the article about the Pizza Hut entirely run by cats? No. Uh, uh, what am I missing? Is that why you told me to order Pizza Hut for dinner? <laughs> I do have Pizza Hut on the brain. Jeff, how did Food Beast get started? You guys are huge now. What, what, what were the humble beginnings? Um, it started out as a University of California Irvine dorm room personal blog by our founder, Eli Aruth. Um, and he was. it was really... Uh, similar to how many blogs get started, just personal musings, and it happened to be related to food. So we're talking about uh, wanted to see how many sloppy joes, you know, someone at the the college could eat in in one sitting. Um, things that were kind of more personal in nature, um, but over time it developed into more of a QSR blog, more into a casual dining blog. Um, more into consumer packaged goods uh, and and stuff that we were seeing and eating on an everyday level and accessible to us. So, you know, we're a part of the millennial generation and we were watching things on Food Network and we were watching things or reading things on recipe sites. And there was just like a big pocket of media that we thought wasn't getting any attention. And we happened to like those things. I mean, as much as uh, fast food and QSR can get a bad rap. We, because we were young and poor, that's what we were eating a lot of, and we were getting excited about that. Um, and we couldn't necessarily afford, you know, the James Beard award-winning restaurants or the Michelin award-winning restaurants. And so we wanted to kind of create something that was a bit more relatable to the everyday. Um, and it kind of just grew from there. I think it was a, a sentiment that a big uh, part of the U.S. and abroad has. Uh, resonated with, and and from there um, we've we've seen a pretty unique opportunity as it relates to uh, just people at home who aren't necessarily culinary trained that are creating these insane things in their own homes. Um, and so hopefully we continue to be um, a big advocate for uh, the crazy internet foods that you might never eat, but uh, you might uh, definitely want to take a look at and watch a video of. Funny, while I was preparing for the show today, somebody came by my desk and was like, Rev, what is this stuff you're looking at? I, I tried to explain Food Beast. And like, who eats this? I was like, I have no idea. I really don't have any idea. Yeah, I would, I would venture to say that, I mean, it's not just us. I think that, you know, with the amount of food videos that are crossing people's feeds now from a number of different publishers and sites, uh, you know, f- f- recipe watching is... I want to say as common as watching any form of entertainment, whether that's you know music videos or you know TV shows or or whatever that is. I mean, food musing um, has become a big part of our pop culture, um, whether you li- kind of like it or not. And um, and we've been a part of that, and we definitely try to do our own take, which is recipes of food you've never seen before. Um, so we'd rather not show you a spaghetti and meatballs that you've probably eaten and seen. Uh, we'd rather 
show you how like an inverse uh, jalapeno popper, which was like we did a burrata stuffed with uh, jalapeno pest, uh, pesto and then deep fried it. So we're trying to kind of show you things that we've never or you've never seen before, and that's hopefully why we continue uh, to be the quote-unquote kind of TMZ of food news where we're just trying to show you stuff that you've never seen before. Do you feel, it certainly seems as though the kind of content that you guys put out is being replicated now by, uh, especially by BuzzFeed and then to a lesser extent um, by even places like Bon Appetit, Food and Wine. Do you feel that you've influenced them? Have you gotten credit for being an influence in the medium? Yeah, I wouldn't say we got like direct credit um, from any of those pubs, but I definitely think uh, we feel that we've made an impact um, on the industry. And I think it, and it's not just us. I think it's the fact that there's just people that are really interested in, in that type of content. I mean, back you know in 2010, 2011, I think we were the only publication covering Epic Meal Time, right? And that turned into an entire thing of its own, um, and those that's not those aren't guys who are in the Food Beast network. I mean, we know them kind of through the interweb. But yeah, I think there's just a, a general demand for things we've never seen before. And every once in a while, they might they might make it. Um, but I think you're seeing the traditional, even print pubs, right? The 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 food and wines, the um, Epicurious, the, all these guys who have been around for for a longer period of time, um, they see the value because people just want that type of content. It's funny. I was watching The Chew today, which is arguably one of the biggest, you know, media publications or media outlets out there for food, and they were talking about rainbow buns. So, yeah, I would say I would say that that you have helped to pierce uh, the upper echelon of food media. A, a lot of the content on Food Beast is created by you know outside entities, other people. What's your process for curation or content? Yeah, the process for us, um, I, you know, doesn't necessarily have a huge formality tied to it. For the most part, it's, you know, if we're seeing you on a, most likely a social platform, whether that's uh, Instagram or Snapchat or Facebook, um, and we see that you, there, you have a specific eye for creating things that is essentially like a world premiere item, that's what we're looking for, and it's kind of pretty simple as that and then we kind of reach out and see if you guys or if, if they want um, some an additional exposure on some of the stuff that they're creating um, because a lot of what we do kind of tends to be you know food misfits for you know for a lack of a better word it's it's people that may not ha be accepted in the mainstream of food but still are doing like really amazing things and I think a great example of that is our friend Kyle the vulgar chef who for sure isn't brand safe, isn't brand friendly, but creates these monstrosities of food and has a really unique eye and take on the world of food. And so we've kind of just accepted him with open arms or accepted Pete My Sneaks or you know accepted Dude Foods and DudeFoods.com into our network, which are, again, they're making food that not everyone is going to enjoy, not everyone's going to like, but, they're, but there's also millions of people that do like it and so we'd like to continue to be a hub for that um, to continue to house the the misfits of food. Just this week you had a friend of ours Jeremy from Brunch Boys do an Instagram takeover of Food Beast. How does something like that come about? He's not exactly you know going out making monstrosities of food he's just chronicling New York City restaurants. 
Yeah, that's just something, um, different profiles for us or different social profiles um, kind of require different types of content. And for us, um, we've connected with a lot of um, Instagrammers that just love to go out and eat, right? And that's been a phenomena that's um, well-documented and continues to grow as people just grow their accounts with crazy food photos. Um, so in addition to the, the recipe stuff that we do, we also want to be continually be a guide for people to eat, uh, to find things that they've never had before. And Brunch Boy is just a good example of someone who's venturing out and finding things that not an everyday person might find, or at least they do it uh, to, to such a degree that they have so many places to recommend, so many cool items to present. So when we find a, uh, a profile that has such a catalog of uh, of photos and of, of knowledge, um, we'd love for them to take over our accounts and to share their knowledge with our Food Beast audience. So Jeff, what, what advice would you give to a, you know, a publicist or a content creator looking to get featured on, on Food Beast? What would be like the best way for them to make something like that happen? I think it first starts with creating like a really interesting original piece of content. Um, and that takes time and it takes effort and it takes some, some strategic thinking. And once you have that, then blasting us as, as many ways as you can in regards to the social sphere. Um, because I think without that, it's, it's really hard to verify uh, the work ethic or it's hard to verify you know, if, if there's like a, a talent pool that can be um, nurtured. And so when you actually create something and you prove to us that you've kind of gone through uh, that gauntlet per se and come out the other side with a crazy photo asset or a crazy video asset or an interesting editorial piece that's a take on something that we never thought of, then most likely you'll have our attention. I mean, our time is limited. We're a 10-person we're a company, and um, so there's a million things for us to do. But I think, uh, first and foremost, we're always looking for amazing editorial, editorial partners um, that are just doing amazing things. And um, if they'd like for us to be a part of, to help expose what they're doing, um, we'd definitely be interested. I think it's when someone tries to present something that doesn't necessarily fall in line as what we consider news or we consider newsworthy or if it kind of just doesn't resonate with uh, a news value, then it's, it's kind of hard for us to uh, switch gears and, and again, to, to bring up that analogy is like if you're going to show us a really cool lasagna, it's got to be different than what the 1,500 lasagnas we've seen before. It's got to be um, it's got to pack a punch in some way. So I think if you invest in that in the content creation, and then and and then probably not just like one piece, but um, you know even like a short series of content, and then send it our way, it's going to get some eyeballs on it. So there's there's a lot of accounts out there that do maybe not exactly what you do, but like have the ability to highlight other people who are involved in the food world. You know, some are good for bloggers, some are good for restaurants, some are good for the Frankenfoods, you know, what, what is the right type of opportunity for somebody to reach out to you for? Like, you know, is, are, is, are, are you right for a restaurant? Are you right for a food blogger? Like, where's, what's the right type of connection there? Yeah, um, I want to say that we're open to all of that. Um, I know that's not necessarily, like, the niche answer um, 
the audience members may, may be looking for. Um, but because we're a news outlet and we try to focus on pretty wide swaths of categories, uh, we're definitely looking for that restaurant. We're looking for that home creation. Um, we're looking for just, again, things that we've never interacted with before. Um, so I think as long as, as long as it can be defined as something like that, then the niche of where it falls in the food realm doesn't doesn't necessarily matter. It just more matters that like it wows us and we've never seen it before. Well, so now also you guys are doing events. You're doing ooze fest. You're doing news, news, news. What what can people expect from a food beast event? Well, um, similar to kind of the approach that we took with our, our site and 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 social profiles, uh, we wanted to be able to offer um, a in real life experience. Um, that represents what we're doing online. And so we felt that there was this kind of disconnect between all of the food that we were showcasing versus, you know, where, and we kept getting this question, you know, where can I get this or do I have to make this? And so we wanted a way to be able to funnel some of that really uh, ingenious creativity from a lot of our, our network and as well as our staffers and, and food bee chefs themselves. So um, events seem to be a really good way to do that, um, and it was also like a, for us, we thought it was the the next foray into uh, you know the economics and the business side of things here at Food Beast um, because we think similarly to how there was uh, an opportunity um, in food content as it related to some of the verticals that I mentioned before, whether that was you know QSR or or, or fast food or uh, consumer packaged goods, we kind of see that same opportunity as it relates to just um, world premieres of food that you've never had. And so last year when we got to the chance to debut food like uh, cheddar cheese cotton candy and we got to debut um, a mozzarella stick bun burger, um, that made headlines on its own and then you were able to like go get it and experience it and also be able to drink, you know, unlimited amounts of craft beer. So that was an event that we were really excited about because it excited us. Like, in a lot of ways, we're our own audience, or at least we hope to be. And so we wanted to create something that, you know, wasn't, necess wasn't a, a six-course pre-fee dining menu at a highly regarded place. It was just like a place where you could get access to 20 different food items, a bunch of different craft beer, and, uh, and, yeah, we're actually expanding that in October 2016 of this year, so we're really excited. That's dope. I mean, aside from the allure and, and the, like, unstoppable force that is a burger with mozzarella stick bun, is it is it difficult, or was it difficult, rather, to segue into doing events? Yeah, it took a pretty large investment on our part um, because uh, no one wants to sponsor an event. That has never happened before, or at least that was our experience. I can't speak for everybody. Um, and so... We had to basically like just kind of put our money where our mouth is and say like this is something that we want to do long term, and, and that's what we did. And I think we were uh, fortunate to be able to you know we partnered with a really cool events company that helped bring our vision to life, uh, 100 Eats, and we also were able to convince 20 local restaurants to to donate their time and energy to put some food forward, and and we tried to show as much love as we could to all those restaurants and all those craft brewers. Um, so yeah, it wasn't, a, it wasn't an easy thing by any means, but I think 
by having um, a sold-out event in our first year gave us a really cool foundation uh, to do some things not only in Southern California, but hopefully um, growing beyond our backyard too. All right, Jeff, I'm sure there's a lot of other people out there who look up to Food Beast and think, you know, I want to do this too, or, you know, how can I turn my site into, into that? Um, let's start with this. Do you offer sponsored content on the blog or the social networks? And if so, how does that work? Yeah, so we've been offering uh, native advertising, branded content, sponsored posts, whatever you want to call it, uh, for at least the past like two and a half years. Um, and it's actually been the reason we exist as a company now. Um, Rudy, actually one of the co-founders, just went on um, the Thalmus podcast and, and talked about how over 70% of of our revenue is related to branded content and native advertising. So, um, so yes, we absolutely do it, and we, in my opinion, we needed to do it. Um, about a couple of years ago, we just noticed that uh, CPMs for display advertising, especially as it relates to the programmatic world, were just going through the floor, um, and the quality of those ads were going through the floor. Um, AdSense was going to the floor, so we really needed a different way to monetize. And we thought that, you know, we had some pretty creative people as it related to uh, editorial in the room. And so uh, we then started offering uh, brands the, the chance to integrate within custom content. Um, and that's definitely, like, changed the trajectory for Foodbeast from from being a hobby and a hobby blog to more of a, a digital publication. And I think it was specifically important because uh, we have about 2 million unique website visitors every month, um, which is great, and we love that, and it's grown a lot. Uh, but in the large sense of things, when you're on the same block with Complex's First We Feast and you know the, the Curved Network Eater and, and Food.com and all sorts of places that have a lot more page views than you, um, you need a you need a way to stick out, and so for us, integrating brands with native content is has been the project that I've been piloting for the past couple of years, and I'm pretty proud with what we've done. And it, there's still a lot way to a long way to go, um, but the reason we're able to continue growing is because of the revenue specifically driven in, driven from native advertising. So speaking of that shift, I've noticed across the board, and it's talked a lot about by people who publish a lot on YouTube that. YouTube views have gone down a lot for channels that publish frequently in the last couple of years, and, and I know that that's true of Food Beast as well. Has that changed the priority of video for Food Beast? Yeah, it definitely changed the, the priority. Um, YouTube was never a monetization play for us, really, ever, um, because they just we weren't able to monet... We, the views we were getting from YouTube... Uh, weren't in the same, like, a top-tier level of YouTuber views. Um, so we were never able to, like, build a business off of YouTube views specifically like other channels were. Um, we were able to grow it within, I think, uh, a decent and competitive amount, um, but we didn't have a million subscribers. Um, and so when we started no noticing the view counts decreasing uh, related to, to YouTube, and we also knew that Facebook video was launching. We, meet, we made a heavy pivot on the Facebook video. But again, that was all for audience acquisition uh, because Facebook is, an, is the number one driver of traffic for editorial. So we basically 
we pivoted our video to be able to like we still launch on YouTube but we targeted Facebook even more and that propelled the growth of our of our Facebook page and because of that growth we also saw growth on, on the editorial side of things too so there was definitely a big shift for us and I'm interested to see what the next steps are for YouTube and how they try to get some of those views back do you feel like some of that traffic is now going over to Facebook with them um, you know giving preferential treatment to some of the videos yeah, I think that, you know, Facebook autoplay and videos in a feed has dramatically taken over uh, from a YouTube search bar or a YouTube subscription link. So um, until there's, there's going to be, you know, some dramatic changes, I, I believe, coming from YouTube because I think it has to be because, yeah, I think there's been... Uh, a huge movement behind shifting from YouTube to Facebook and I think that came in Facebook's infrastructure again the auto playing videos in feed the fact that they promote they promoted video and the algorithm so heavily and they already had you know the biggest user base on the planet um, there's gonna have to be a pretty big re reason to switch back to YouTube um, but that's part of the ever evolving mecca of content that we are living in right now, right? I mean, digital content, I mean, people are just spending money everywhere to create content, not even knowing where it's going to be distributed. Distri uh, distributed. Um, and so that's a very interesting wild, wild west that we're all fighting with now. Which of the social networks that you guys are engaged with are you getting the most requests for sponsored content on? Gotcha. Um, that has to be Facebook, but that's also because that's where our biggest audience lies. Um, being able to grow our page to nearly three million, um, that's the reach that most advertisers want to access. That might be different for different publishers, um, but with Facebook growth, we've seen demand for Facebook specifically grow as well. And for the people that are coming to you and asking for a Facebook-sponsored post, what is like? What's the most common goal that they're asking for? Is it likes to their page? Is it clickouts to something else? What are most people looking for? You know, the most of the stuff that we get is actually just like overall exposure and impressions. Um, they're relate when we have campaigns related to Instagram, uh, there might be more like I want to specifically increase my following. Um, but with Facebook, it's kind of been more uh, custom video content related, and they've seemed to be pretty happy with overall impressions. I mean, f with Facebook video, I think you're at a point now where you know, people are pretty commonly seeing one cent and two cent CPVs, which is pretty unheard of um, in in the uh, in the YouTube uh, days. So um, the fact that that's even accessible for people now and for brands and for partners, um, I think that has everyone excited. I'm just kind of curious to like what's what's next um, because I, I don't think views are ever going to be. Uh, cheaper than they are right now, and I think the inventory of Facebook video is going to get considerably considerably more clogged as you know thousands of publishers understand the power of Facebook video right now. Um, so I'm curious to see how that affects things in the future, and I'm also um, not completely stoked on having a codependence on a platform that we have no ownership or control of. So. We're always trying to diversify where our audiences come from, and I think that's something that's really important to consider 
when you're building your own brand, building your own publisher, build, you know, building your own site, etc. Yeah, I, th I think you're touching on where I'm going here. I mean, F Facebook is no longer okay with you leaving it. Uh, and it seems to me like every day they're doing more and more to get people to, to stay on there. Um, when you guys are posting your own content on Facebook, is, is there a call to action? Are you looking for a secondary action? Is it about likes? Is it exposure? Is it clickouts? Like, what are you using your Facebook content for? Uh, with the switch from YouTube to Facebook, Facebook's really just audience acquisition for us. So, I mean, we're experimenting um, with publishing within Facebook, like a lot of publishers are. Um, but that's still we're still unsure about how that's going to go, at least specifically. Uh, for us, um, but Facebook right now is just audience growth. Um, it continues to grow as a referrer of traffic to foodbeast.com, and obviously we're monetizing on foodbeast.com um, a lot more than we are through any specific social channel. So, um, I mean, we are monetizing through Facebook as it relates to native content and brand integration, but it's not coming from Facebook and it's not like a, a, a you know a direct on the platform see this ad um, so so yeah that's kinda that's the environment that that we're working under so you're not if I'm hearing you correctly you're not working with like okay the website is our central hub and everything has to go there you're more looking at each network as like okay this network does this this network does this this is how we use it is that correct we yeah we definitely try to again it's kinda hard to do that with um, a 10-person staff in a small company, but as much as we can pay attention to individual networks and the strengths of those, um, we try to format content for that specifically, um, just because we see better engagement with that. And I think the key to growing those platforms is trying to keep that engagement level as high as possible to keep those unlikes and unfollows to a minimal while you're growing um, with the content that you're you're creating and building. Um, so yeah, it's, uh, you know, again, our editorial content gets shared on Facebook and Twitter and even if there's a good photo on Instagram. Our videos uh, hit YouTube, Facebook, sometimes 15 second snippets hit Instagram. Um, Snapchat we primarily use kind of as a live uh, format um, but all of this is evolving and shifting as the platforms change and add their new features and all compete with one another. So I think it's important that each, uh, each network is used as it's intended. And, and speaking, of it, uh, speaking of which, we have a very, very, very specific question for you about YouTube. Okay. All right, so your co-founder once created quite the kerfuffle uh, mm -hmm. when he posted a video on YouTube showing him ordering a monkey-style burger in and out uh, which basically is a cheeseburger style with animal style fries. That video made all the rounds. It hit every corner of the web. Uh, and the next thing we know, a v VP at In-N-Out released a statement claiming they're unable to make burgers in that way. Jeff, we need to know, was this an honest move or an insanely calculated plan to show people the power of Food Beast? Uh, we had convinced a local In-N-Out to make that burger for us, uh, and so it was our experience to be able to create a monkey-style burger. Um, I think as soon as it started making headlines and waves across uh, the entire Internet, it became very apparent that it was not going to be able to be made um, from anyone 
that you know had management in their title were saying no. We saw memos being specifically targeted to stores that said that you know not to make this burger, and here's the you know the dozen reasons why it can't work from the way their fries lines work to where their burger lines work. At the end of the day, it's French fries inside of a burger, so I don't think it's uh, that hard of an ask. Uh, but definitely because of the publicity it got, they they did a stern no um, to all lo all in and out locations. So we we still have a build your own monkey style uh, template that that we personally use. Uh, but yeah, you're not going to be able to get it in store, unfortunately. That's a drag. Would you be up for doing it again? Because I have some ideas. I have some ideas. Oh, definitely we'd be up to doing it again. Well, I'd love to hear the ideas. Well, I'm, I'm gonna just going to throw one at you now. We can maybe discuss some more privately. But I would love – you know what the Kentucky Hut is when you get the Kentucky Fried Chicken Taco Pizza Hut thing? Uh-huh. I would love to have a deep dish KFC bowl pizza. Say that again. Deep dish KFC bowl pizza. Oh, wow. You know the KFC bowls with like the, the, it's got like corn and gravy and chicken and cheese and mashed potatoes? Well, I want that inside a baked Pizza Hut pizza crust. Whoa. <laughs> well, I certainly didn't think, Brad, that we'd have a moment where we were going to stun somebody from Food Beast on the, on the, on the call. I have no words. And, <laughs> uh, yeah, let's, uh, if we can continue the conversation after the call because, uh, that might need to be executed immediately, and I just want to make sure that proper credit is given. Um, that's amazing. And I think it's stuff like that, especially as it relates to just food mashups, um, where there are some of the most like ingenious ideas that, for whatever reason, have never been thought of, or at least thought of and published on the Internet. And I remember when the first time I saw a place was putting orange chicken inside of a burrito, I was just like... Why have I never thought of that, you know? And I think even though I think hacks has been kind of played to death in a lot of ways, there's still there's still moments like this where when you when you want to put uh you know, the KFC bowl inside of a, a a pizza, that that's genius and someone should do it and we're definitely the pub that wants to document it. Well, Brad, we have a timeline because this show goes live next week. So let's get the this show goes live in three days, buddy. In three days <laughs> this week. <laughs> uh, Jeff, so I think what what the next step is for people is to be, do food mashups between two restaurants. That, that's my deal, like taking a White Castle hamburger and putting it inside a McGriddle because that will cure a hangover. You know, it will cure a hangover, and I actually. Uh, I don't write too, don't write and photograph too much content anymore. Even though that's what I really love to do, I have a J school background, and that's what I started doing. Um, but when I was in Vegas about, I, I want to say over a year ago now, and Shake Shack had been there. The Shake Shack in Las Vegas is like four blocks, like four tenths of a mile from an In-N-Out location, and so I combined the Shake Shack and In-N-Out burgers, and I was actually like really proud of that because. It wasn't really possible before their Vegas location because there weren't two in the same area. So I totally get what you're saying, man. If you have an opportunity to mash up some some cool stuff, I'm completely for it, and for sure it'll cure a hangover. Just because like your brain, even if it doesn't scientifically, your brain will trick you and say that this is definitely the hangover cure. 
I'll take a placebo to cure a hangover. Just, I think this food, I think we need a category for this food item, but Brad, on to you. Okay, so Jeff, as we wrap up, we're going to take a slight detour from food mashups and talk about some food favorites. Cool. So every week on the podcast, uh, we like to ask our guests a few burger-related questions because we are mega burger guys in Europe. It seems like everyone at Food Beast is probably a mega burger guy as well. So what was your favorite burger from childhood? Uh, favorite burger from childhood? Um, on Fridays after school, uh, my my parents would, would always uh, take me to Carl's Jr. So the, the bacon western cheeseburger was the burger growing up that I craved and always wanted. And because it was only like a once a week or a couple of times a month thing, um, I, I'm not sick of it yet. Um, so that was definitely like my, my childhood uh, burger growing up. Um, outside of the the familial burger that's, you know, dad cooking on the grill. Um, that's always good, too. Um, but the one I craved was was definitely the Western bacon. Man, that dad cooking on the grill is a real pattern for this question. <laughs> I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it. Jeff, what was the uh, what was the last burger you ate? Uh, the last burger I ate uh, was um, we had uh, one of our chef friends in the kitchen, and uh, we, did, we actually did a stout beer chili. And we then froze that in, like, ramekins. Uh, we then put ground beef around that frozen patty of chili. Um, so we kind of had, like, a melting chili burger. Um, that, was the, that was the last burger I ate, and I'm actually pretty stoked to report that for this podcast that it was the last burger I ate. Did you, uh, did you guys post that? Uh, no, we've uh, filmed it, but we haven't posted it yet. Um, so Russian dressing, butter lettuce. We actually did a barbecue sauce on the burger, but um, one of my uh, one of my favorites of recent note. That sounds awesome. I'm really upset that there's no nothing I can look at right now. <laughs> <laughs> I can send you a private YouTube link if you want, uh, but that's all I got for right now. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take I it for sure. I want to see it, but then when it goes live, we'll we'll share it on our social networks as well. So awesome. Well, I'll send it over to you guys. Dope. Uh, Jeff, if you could give one piece of advice to someone in the food marketing business, what would you give them? Uh, finding an original voice takes time. And for us, it took probably three or four years before we really understood where we were going, what we wanted to do, um, how we wanted to cover things. And I think that expands to, to social channels too. Um, is Even if you find your voice, you still have these mini sub-voices that you're using for the different channels. Um, you know, for example, like our audience on Facebook is more female than our website audience, and you start noticing how people comment on Instagram versus comment on Facebook, and so you tweak certain things. But I think ultimately, like if you're not willing to kind of pour the time and, and experimentation towards building that unique voice, it's probably never going to be. And uh, there's... I'd say a majority of content that's being spewed out on social channels lacks that voice, lacks that soul. Um, and so I just highly encourage to putting the, the time in necessary to find it because once you have it and you are a unique voice on the web in the sea of endless voices, um, you'll be able to build on something from there. I like to think that Burger Weekly has a voice but definitely no soul whatsoever. <laughs> that's, that's what I'm I think your soul is just blackened, but that's a whole other story. Well, I think Burger Weekly, too, to your point, it's like it's it's focused and, and covers a niche topic. I think 
you know, in the last three or four years, you saw uh, a proliferation of just general internet interest publications, right? Like, oh, hey, there's cats. Oh, hey, this celebrity did this. Like, oh, hey, you're never going to believe. And, like, there, there's a lot of that right now, and I think the, the clickbait's going to work for a, a good amount of time as people are generally interested towards certain things, but long-term it becomes hard to sustain that voice because you're not a go-to for a specific vertical. You're just a catch-all for everything. And I don't think people think in terms of media that way unless they're scrolling through a feed. And in this case, feed mean, has lots of meanings. <laughs> 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 Jeff, it's been a real, real pleasure having you on the show today. Thanks so much for making the time to, uh, to talk with us and give us some insights. Um, we're definitely going to have to connect on this uh, Kentaco Hut deep dish KFC bowl pizza. But until that happens... Tell people where they can find out more about you. Yeah, make sure to check us out on foodbeast.com, at foodbeast on Instagram and Twitter, um, slash foodbeast on Facebook, and find us on Snapchat at foodbeast.com for all your food news-related needs. And we need to start this hashtag up, the misfits of food. Yeah, man, I think we're all a part of it, and, uh, and that, that audience is growing, my friend. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in to another episode of Like, Bite, and Share. We hope you found today's interview insightful. If you didn't get a chance to write down everything, no worries. We take the show notes for you. Go to schweidandsons.com slash podcast to find them. If you enjoy the show, we ask for one favor, and that's please give us a rating in iTunes. That helps us to spread the word to others who might find this valuable like you do. If you haven't subscribed to the show yet, please subscribe on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss a future episode featuring helpful tips from other professionals in the food marketing business. Stay hungry.